Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, we speak to Canadian New Wave icons Martha and the Muffins about the resurrection of Kate Bush's 1985 track, Running Up That Hill, thanks to its use in a new season of Stranger Things, and ask why do tracks from that era continue to find new audiences with younger generations. We look into how a dispute between players and Soccer Canada forced a friendly between Canada and Panama in Vancouver on Sunday to be cancelled just hours before the game was meant to start, and what impact will it have on the team and Canada's reputation in the soccer world. We find out why British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is so unpopular within his own party these days, just three years after helping the Conservatives to a massive majority. But first, we hear from a close friend of a Muslim family struck and killed by a vehicle in London, Ontario, one year ago today, in what authorities called a hate crime. How did the community mark the somber anniversary? And is enough being done in this country to fight Islamophobia? But first, to London, Ontario, a prayer service and vigil was held today there to honour four members of a Muslim family killed one year ago today in what authorities have called a hate-motivated attack. Three generations of that family died that day. Salman Afzul, his wife Madiha Salman, their 15-year-old daughter uh, Yumna, and 74-year-old grandmother Talat Afzul died after police say they were deliberately hit by a truck during an evening walk. The family's nine-year-old son was hurt but survived. Today, relatives placed flowers on the graves of the four victims. Imam Munir El-Kassam in London says people are sending messages to the world that Islamophobia needs to be eliminated. Because uh, uh, how many times are we going to uh, bid farewell uh, people into uh, the other side of life uh, before we will wake up and, and, and say enough is enough? The impact was uh, very strong on the community, and uh, uh, this is expected because, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, horrific crime that was committed, that was the cause of the passing uh, of uh, the uh, four members of the Afzal family, uh, resonated throughout the world, not only in London, Ontario. The Afzal family released a statement saying, as a family, we've always believed in equality and freedom from all forms of discrimination on account of race, color, or creed. In our view, June 6th, 2021 marked a day when life was not only taken from four innocent people, but from the whole of humanity. The accused in the attack faces murder and related terrorism charges. No date set yet for the trial. Joining me now with more from London is Sabur Khan. He's a close friend of the Azul families. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How was it this weekend? Uh, there were a lot of events going on. What were your What were your thoughts as you look back to a year ago, and and how was it felt in the community this year? It's uh, you know never easy to deal with a matter like this. You never plan for it. You never um, wish for something like this. And uh, we started off Saturday with uh, an event uh, dedicating uh, the gymnasium of a new mosque we established just nearby the site of the hate crime. Uh, And it was a very private event where Faiz was there and the family were there. And it just sort of brought all those raw emotions back. And it was a very difficult time just seeing what, Yumna's potential was, seeing what great potential Madiha and Solman had and how great of contributors they were to the greater society in their field of work and their community volunteerism and all that being lost. All, and, and every day just build on that. And, and so it's been a difficult weekend, but at the same time, seeing all of Canada basically standing together against hate and seeing some action, gradual action, step-by-step action, uh, moving uh, the pendulum forward in in standing up against Islamophobia. Sabor, you knew this family really well. For people who didn't, um, who what, what was lost that day? They they sounded like like just a lovely family, and and you know the, the three generations too. It's it's almost unimaginable, obviously. Well, I think it's an understatement to say like they were literally the best of our community 
everybody admired them. Everybody, when they spoke of model sort of human beings, you know, uh, they, they mentioned this family. Only good came out of this family. Uh, within the, the Muslim community and, and the fact that they outreach beyond the Muslim community into the greater community. And all you had, I, I spoke to several people at the vigil today who had encountered Salman or other members of the family. They would say always they had a smile on their face. Always, even if you said the meanest thing to them, even if there was the most difficult of situations, they would have a smile on their face. And and they just worked hard for their future. They worked hard for Canada. And it just pains very much that this is what they got in return. If you go back to a year, I mean, I've spent time in London, Ontario. Part of my family is from London, Ontario. Uh, what kind of, sh I mean, what was the reaction? Even today, how does the community there try to process this? Well, I think, you know, initially it was a, it was a shock sort of a situation. Um, we, we have had these incidents several times but you never really prepare for it so close to home uh, a couple of years back when it happened in Quebec City uh, and a man whose name is not worth mentioning entered into a mosque and killed a whole bunch of people um, and you know people lost their fathers their brothers their sons or they were paralyzed or or had permanent sort of injuries. Um, it was very close, and it was it was difficult to deal with. And prior to that, in New Zealand, uh, about fifty something odd number of people were killed between two mosques. And the attacker, whose name is not worth mentioning again, he was on his way to a Muslim daycare, and he was stopped just in time. And uh, similarly, other incidents in the U.S. and elsewhere uh, that have taken place, uh, y you always get shocked by it. But nothing like when it happens right in your own home to a person you knew. And everybody knew the Afzals. Everybody knew them because they were so engaged in the community. They gave back in the Muslim community. They gave back in the greater uh Community, London community, and uh, they were very high achievers in in their. Uh, Madiha was just finishing her PhD. Uh, Salman, he was, uh, you know, servicing a, a senior home. Madiha, she was a top student in her Oak Ridge Secondary School, uh, and so it, when it happens to someone. <laughs> so close it's just paralyzingly shocking and that's sort of the situation that was for a while last year and the community has grown out of that especially after the immense amount of support that poured out from the greater community um we had huge turnouts at the marches and vigils and we realized no no we we, we are together we this is our home, this is our land, as we always thought it was. And together with our Canadian brothers and sisters, we will we'll get past this. And since last year, we have gradually built on that uh, with our fellow Canadians. I was just on the phone with Reverend um, Kevin George from a local Anglican church, who has been a huge pillar of support for our community, um, when others have decided to be silent or uh, further propagate hate. And examples, people like him are examples of why we have hope, why we know we just need to work harder. We need to make sure people understand and see who Muslims are. Um, they're just human beings just like everyone else. Um, what a few people around the world may may portray as Muslims doesn't represent all Muslims. 
just as anyone Christian or anyone Jew or anyone person of any other group does not represent a whole group. So this is part of the growing process we've been going through as a community and finding ways to move forward to make sure we don't lose another Afzal family. I'm speaking with Sabur Khan. He's a close family friend of the Afzal family, uh, victims of, sus- of a suspected hate crime that took place in London, Ontario. One year ago today, four members of the family killed, including the couple, um, their daughter and uh, her grandmother. Uh, when we come back, a bit more about the gymnasium, because I know, Sabor, you worked really hard on this project specifically in memory of your close friends, uh, and a bit more about fighting Islamophobia in the country. There's been a lot of commitments, a lot of promises the past few days. I want to ask you a bit more about that. We'll do so after this. Yet we still see some politicians who flirt, who play footsie with organizations that are promoting hate, that are speaking things that I know cause a lot of Canadians discomfort and, and makes them feel unwelcome in their own country. That's Omar Al-Galbra, the transport minister today, uh, with other cabinet ministers announcing that applications are now open for the position of a federal envoy on Islamophobia, who will advise the prime minister and government on ways to fight anti-Muslim hatred in this country. I'm speaking this half hour with Sabur Khan. He's a close family friend of the Afzul family, uh, four members of that family, of course, uh, killed in what is suspected to have been a hate-fueled attack uh, while out on a walk in London, Ontario last year. Uh, Sabur have you seen, do you think, from all levels of government, enough done this last year to, to, to at least attempt to tackle this issue? Um, I think most members of our community would say that much more could have been done. And a key challenge is, unfortunately, you know, the politics of it. Um, I mean, starting locally in our city, I think a lot has been done. Um, uh, the, the mayor has been a very strong supporter, and I, support, I, I suppose there's only so much you can do at the, at the local level. At the provincial level is where we, I think, really hope to see more action. Uh, the Ford government, uh, you know, uh, had a, could have easily passed the Our London Family Act, uh, which addresses some of the uh, Islamophobic uh, uh, tendencies and, and, and uh, hopefully would have, would have, you know, mitigated the risks to our community. But because perhaps the bill was uh, put forward by the opposition, they didn't um, pass it. Um, and now, subsequent to the election, they still have not made any sort of commitment to passing the Our London Family Act. Uh, and, and it just does not make sense. Like, it's a pretty straightforward bill. It's, it's in line with what uh, Ford had uh, mentioned, and, and it's a very confusing sort of situation for our community of, as to why he's delaying it and as, well, as to why, you know, the provincial government is not passing this bill. And it was also sort of disappointing not to see him as some of the events while the prime minister was in attendance. And many people really appreciated from the federal government that, you know, many senior uh, cabinet ministers were present and uh, the prime minister himself came. Um, but certainly at, at the federal level, uh, there's much more that can be done. And um, we, we understand that there's some efforts to put forward uh, bills to address uh, the targeting of Muslims uh, under security organizations when Muslims are not necessarily the largest, uh, the, the, the biggest th- uh, sort of security issue in Canada. Uh, I understand back around 9-11, uh, the situation was different, but various, um, uh, you know, statistics clearly show that, for example, white supremacy is a much bigger threat to Canada's security. But there's, there isn't as much uh, focus in that area as it is uh, unnecessarily on innocent Muslims. So in the, in the, in, in the various sort of uh, ministries of the government, there is systematic Islamophobia. And the government, I believe, is gradually working towards 
looking at that, and part of that was this uh, um, creating this special representative role, um, which I think is long time coming. I think this role has really helped address anti-Semitic, um, uh, you know, issues uh, that unfortunately targeted the Jewish community in the past. So the Jewish community has a special representative uh, for similar uh, um, um, purpose, and and I welcome this. But again, it it only goes so far as this special representative has influence and is able to be effective. If if this special representative has certain connection within the government of making sure uh, they're able to you know reach out with the different ministries, have the right sort of level of conversation, has the right resources. To, to make the change that is needed to to influence, that's when this role will be effective and it will have me. So I look forward to that kind of a dynamic, and I see some movement towards that at the federal level. Sabur Khan, I also know you went to a lot of work to to build that community space to make that happen uh, in time for this anniversary. And I thank you very much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And again, my condolences uh, to you and the community for the loss of, of of your friend and your family, of the family. It's my pleasure to be part of this, uh, really, because this is how we will learn about one another. Um, yeah, the gym, the gymnasium that was dedicated to the family, it's a, it's a huge investment from our community. We spent well over a million dollars sort of making sure it had all the right things needed for the youth uh, in our community to find a place um, where they can feel comfortable. And especially our ladies uh, and uh, who wear the hijab and sometimes in, in other public spaces, uh, they're not welcome. Uh, they're Some seen more. different. I'm and running so, out of time. I, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I no worries. My it. pleasure. You guys have Thanks. a great day. When I was a kid, I loved American Top 40. I loved the pop charts. I just liked counting things down and finding out what number one was. This is before I knew you could buy a magazine and figure out all the Top 40 before they even aired it. Um, so it's always fun to see fun things happen on the charts. And one of the coolest things that's happened on the charts in 2022 is the resurrection of Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. It's now a top 10 hit in Britain again. It's been near the top of the iTunes charts. It's been played a ton on Spotify, all thanks to its inclusion in the latest series of episodes of Stranger Things. So, um, you know, it's great to see Kate Bush, who is not really a, you know, she's very popular in England, but had some chart success, but not really. She's sort of more one of those uh, people that critics really like and so on. Running Up That Hill is one of her greatest songs. So I was thinking, well, how, who would I want to talk to about this tonight? Because it is kind of a cool story. And I thought back to the time that I was living in England and how surprised I was, maybe not surprised, but pleasantly surprised as a Canadian, just how often you heard Echo Beach in the UK. I mean, you heard it all the time. That is one of the most famous Canadian songs in Britain. And it so happens that the same tour manager who did Kate Bush's one and only tour back in 1979 was also Martha and the Muffins tour manager when they did Europe and Britain back in their uh, Metro Music uh, Echo Beach days. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to talk to Martha and the Muffins? Because I love the track anyway, and let's see what they think about Kate Bush. So drop them an email. They said, absolutely. So joining me now is Martha Johnson and Mark Gain, who you may better know as the founding members of Martha and the Muffins. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Good to be here, Ben. Nice to be here. I, I, I mean, it, it must be always in, in your shoes. It must be interesting to see songs reconnect with a new generation. I know you have kids and all that, but when you see a, a song from the 80s, all of a sudden find a new audience, it must be uh, it must be gratifying in some way. Well, it is. And it's great to see, um, you know, songs coming back that are, are maybe 30, 40 years old and, uh, and finding a new audience. And, uh, you know, in terms of the recent Kate Bush running up that hill, song on stranger things i think it's fantastic like I, it's just such a great thing to be able to um have kids that weren't even born then hearing it and liking it and you know that's a sign i think of a song with legs yeah. and they're melodic i think a lot of these songs <laughs> supply a melody for these uh, these uh, this new audience uh, something that there isn't a lot of in, in music these days uh, that, I was really curious about that because I think at the time, 
if I remember back to being, I was, you know, I was, I was young, but not too young. Uh, you know, New Wave was sort of dismissed in some ways as being a bit transitory because it was synthy and it was new. But if you look back now, a lot of those songs from that era, whether it be Echo Beach, yours or others, have really survived the test of time and have found new audiences again and again. What do you think it was about, about uh, songs from that era that continue uh, to connect with listeners even 30, 40 years later? Um, well, I, I think it's that if it's a good song, it doesn't really matter the genre, you know, like, I mean, I know people, there were some people that dismissed punk and new wave and, you know, because all things new often, well, sometimes uh, get resistance. And, uh, you know, another song that's come up lately um, because of the Queen's uh, Jubilee is God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes it's an event that triggers the idea of that song coming back or, and makes it relevant again. But usually I think it's just the, a song has to have some substance beyond its initial popularity, you know? And so we have a granddaughter now and she's uh, 14 months old and I sing her songs like show me the way to go home and you are my sunshine the way my dad did to me and you know those songs have lakes yeah because you, they mean something they have an emotional depth to them yeah i, I you know i know you went to to the uk in 79 to re, to re, to record uh metro music including uh, echo beach i guess kate bush was sort of at the height of her early fame at that point yeah she was very popular um and uh, it was funny because our tour manager when we did our, our tours in england and uh, Europe, um, he he had he was the same person who was the tour manager for for Kate Bush as well. So we got some stories about Kate from, from behind the scenes, and I think she had uh, some stage fright. and uh, And he talked about her her dancing as well, and so he was he was very taken with her talent. Yeah, well, she's a really talented person, and. Um, yeah, so that's one of those six degrees of separation things. You know, we never met Kate, but we had the same tour manager. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, she only did that one tour, right? And then she yeah, really, yeah. really right. toured again after 79. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you look back now at Echo Beach, I was just I was telling you just before we, we started speaking that when I was living in the UK, I was astounded about how often you still hear that song. Did you have any concept when you, when you recorded it, just how how long, how much you know, that it would be one of those hits for the ages? No, there was absolutely no, no idea that this was ever going to happen. And it, it, it could, it continues to astound us, I think, because um, where it did well around the world, it still gets played. I have a high school friend who mer- uh, moved to Perth, Australia, which is basically, I, from what I understand, it's a beach town. And he said, Mark, literally every day they play that song. And, you know, it's kind of spread into a cultural mem, you know, almost because uh, there's been all these things named after it all over the world. Like, you know, uh, hotels in Zanzibar and Bali, uh, a German dub label, uh, an Irish racehorse, an iris being the flower. Um, and it goes on in a, a science fiction story. It just goes on and on. And so what I think um, uh, really makes us happy as songwriters is to see it go beyond that initial thing. And then it starts coming back at you through all these other things. You know, they it goes out there to Jupiter, bounces back and in a whole other form. It, I mean, it's great. I think the best thing about it is that it brought some happiness to some people. You know, they, they are really in love with the song. You know, they, it means something to them. It takes them back to a time in their their younger days. And, uh, and also then there's a new audience discovering it as well. What do younger audiences say about, about your tracks when, when, uh, because you had, I mean, you had some different sounds, obviously, uh, Eminem, uh, black stations, white stations is a, is a bit, sounds different than echo beach. Another great song song in my head. I, I love that when it came out as well. Uh, how do, how do younger audiences react to your, to your music these days? Well, you know, that's the, the, uh, the site where you, the two people listen or somebody listens to your music from because they've never heard it before. Right. It's like a reaction video thing. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Those they're, are always really, they're always really positive about the, they did Black Stations, White Stations, and they did Apple Beach, and they, they got very positive reactions. So that's sort of an indication. But 
And also, you know, because we have a YouTube channel, you so you get a lot of comments and, you know, you get all sorts of stuff. But one thing that comes up um, surprisingly is kids going, I really wish that I'd grown up in that era or, you know, name the era, but they go, you know, music, uh, you know, I'm only 24 and this stuff's way better than, you know, and I don't subscribe to that opinion myself. Um, I don't want to be a cranky old guy, you know, but, but, you know, it's interesting that some young people, I think since the degree to which music back then was played by real human beings and stuff. And, you know, we, we like using rhythm boxes and stuff too, but I, there was, uh, you know, at, at some point, melody became less scarce and earworm songs are harder to come by. I mean, one example for me lately, or not that lately, but I guess is Pharrell's Happy. I mean, I think that's one of the best pop songs written in the last decade because it's so melodic and it's so infectious and it's got those phenomenal harmonies. It's, it's just great. Yeah, you do notice that songs that have melodies, whether it be Hey Ya by Outkast, which goes back a little bit further, or any number, but songs yeah. with melodies are still still resonate to this day. Um, what have you been, what is, what have, what have Martha, what have Eminem been up to uh, in the last few years through the pandemic and so on? Well, we've been busy. We've been really busy. For, um, and so we have a number of projects going on. We, um, our manager, uh, Graham Stairs, uh, just released an album of cover songs called Coverama. And the way that came about is that he um, approached us and said, uh, the producers of Sex Education, the, next, the Netflix series, want a cover of the English Beats, Save It for Later, for their third season trailer. And he said, can you do that? And, Martha said, and I was going, I don't know, in three days, because it had to happen really and Martha said, yeah, let's do it. So we spent that weekend doing it, and it came out really well, and it's quite different from the original. The producer, the um, music supervisor loved it and said, you know, this is right on the nose. And But unfortunately, the producers decided not to use any version of that song from anybody, so it never happened. So we were left with this great song. I said to our manager, okay, what are we going to do with this? Why don't we get everybody on the label to do their favorite cover? Uh, you know, and I was using it, we were using it as an excuse to get something happening with the song. And so he put out cover rammer. So we've been doing that. Uh, we released uh, a collection of rare cuts uh, called Marthology in an outtakes back in November. And I'm just about to complete... Um, a project I started over 20 years ago um, called Garden Music, and it's based on, uh, it's all instrumentals based on the common names of plants. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a starter. That, there's some of the stuff we've been doing. Wide palette. <laughs> yeah, it is a wide palette. Uh, you had some experience. I mean, you had a track, if I'm not mistaken, a track called Paradise that wound up in the credits of Paradise Falls. So you had some, you had some a contact with, with how, um, you know, modern modern media can promote a, a record it must be it must be quite um i mean it's 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 a real way of music getting popular now for sure it, it may be one of the main ones for sure yeah we've had a few placements over the years with various songs and well, echo beach was a, a series in in the uk that's right yeah it, that was dramatic series and uh Gabrielle Chilmi did a version of Echo Beach for that. And, uh, you know, so it does pop up. And I think it's a great thing. I mean, I know people have mixed feelings about that. Um, especially with commercials. Yeah, yeah, especially with commercials. And you have to like or at least feel comfortable with the product that's, you know, your song is being attached to. But it is a really great way of reaching audiences that you could never do before. Uh, just to go back to the beginning, uh, this is an interesting moment to see. I mean, I imagine that the success of running up that hill now will at least allow a new generation to go back and dig through those crates, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, and especially for Kate Bush, I mean, they'll, they'll probably be interested in all the other things she did. And she did a lot of marvelous things. Uh, you know, the, the great thing about her is that she was an intelligent and is an intelligent woman who wrote great songs and did it at least as it appears to, you know, on the outside, her on her own terms. Like she never 
kind of went the, you know, I have to dress like a stripper in order to promote my music or any of it. Like she just, she's artistic. She was artistic and she presented herself as herself, maybe sometimes doing, you know, interpretive dancing and stuff, but you know, there was a legitimacy about the way she approached things that I think was great. And uh, you know, the more people that, are curious about what else she's done can only, you know, be great for her. And anytime anyone gets a release, you do hope that those people will go, Hey, I'm going to Google this band and see what else they did. And sometimes, you know, like in our case, it's like we're 40 plus years uh, having been around and we have a lot of stuff. And as you alluded, we, we switched a lot of styles over the years because we we've always been, curious about exploring different types of music um and we never let commerciality get in the way of that you'll be you'll be I, because i looked this up earlier you'll be happy to know that many 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 times on best hits of the 80s compilations you're not far away from kate bush's running up that hill off at echo yeah. beach is usually on the same comp so thanks so much martha and mark i really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with me and uh, some of your insight on this uh, fascinating stuff thank okay, you thank we enjoyed you. it thanks a lot so it's not often if you live in victoria that you take a day trip to vancouver sometimes for a special occasion so forth but yesterday was a bit of a special occasion so uh we got up my wife and i in the morning and we headed out to the ferry and we went to vancouver and we had lunch which was great and then i headed into town to meet up with some friends to go see a soccer match that's why I went to Vancouver yesterday to see Team Canada play Team Panama. Originally, we were going to go see Iran play Canada. Of course, that match was canceled uh, in a furor, a political furor, after, of course, it was uh, pointed out that Iran might not be the best opponent to choose for a friendly just two years after uh, a plane carrying many Canadian citizens was shot down uh, in Tehran or over Tehran uh, by the Revolutionary Guard, of course, <laughs> the, the government essentially. Uh, so Panama was the replacement. So we got tickets to go see Panama. Then about an hour and a half, two hours before the game was meant to be played, there were people all over the place, slowly coming towards BC Place to watch this. Lots of families, lots of kids wearing their shirts. You know, that it's a great atmosphere. This was supposed to be a celebration. Canada hadn't played, Team Canada, the men's team, hadn't played in BC since 2019, in Vancouver at least. And, um, you know, they'd qualified for the World Cup. People at West, big soccer fans, hadn't seen this team in a long time. This is an exciting team full of big names. So everyone was really uh, excited about this. Lo and behold, no game. The fan players are on strike. There's a dispute with Soccer Canada. We're not playing. End of story. Now, a soccer friendly is a bit like a church picnic. This isn't incredibly difficult stuff to figure out how to do. You're not organizing a full-on tournament. It's not the World Cup. It's not the European Cup. It's nothing big. It's one game against an opponent of your choosing. All you have to do is invite them, make sure they have a place to stay and a place to play and show up and play against them. Pretty straightforward stuff. You even have stadiums to do it in. But no, it didn't happen. Um, the players put out a statement saying that um, they decided not to play the game because negotiations over a new deal had been unnecessarily prolonged, quote unquote, uh, by Soccer Canada. Went on to say, quote, it's time we take a stand for the future of soccer in Canada, noting that talks over this dispute began back in March. Then late in the day, Soccer Canada's president, Nick Bontis, had this to say. Canada soccer is very disappointed the men's national team players' decision to refuse to play today. We would like to firstly apologize to all of our Canada soccer fans and reaffirm our gratitude to you for your continued support. I am sorry that this game did not occur today. Canada soccer has been working with the players in good faith to find a path forward that is fair and equitable to all. We would like to have a facts-based discussion within the fiscal reality that Canada soccer has to live with every day. All right. So we'll get into what the issue is, but if you're Canada soccer or soccer Canada, you do not let a game be canceled two hours before kickoff with fans. You've already sold the tickets. You've already had to cancel a friendly because you picked the wrong opponent or didn't pay attention to the geopolitical scene and picked the wrong team to come visit, causing a furor. 
you then replace that opponent, invite fans back to come see the game, and you cancel it again. So we wanted to find out, I wanted to find out what happened. So joining me now is John Molinaro. He's a soccer reporter and founder of tfcrepublic.ca. The site covers Toronto FC and the Canadian men's and women's national teams. John, thank you for your time tonight. Sure, no problem. I see we have a bit of a breakthrough this evening. At least the players are training again. What's what's happened? Yeah, so the players uh, and both the Canada Soccer both issued a statement saying that while no agreement has been uh, agreed upon, that the, that the players have agreed to return to training today ahead of uh, the game against Curacao on Thursday. So um, that to me suggests that you know, at least that they're talking and some progress is made, even though no deal is in place. So that's uh, certainly a positive. John, you've watched a lot of soccer. I've watched a lot of soccer over the years. Just how rare is it for a friendly to be called off two hours before game time with fans, tickets already purchased, fans already showing up? Yeah, so in the world of soccer, it's not terribly uh, out of the ordinary for teams to sort of threaten to go on strike shortly before a game. Um, I, I can recall during the World Cup qualifiers that El Salvador's national team was a, did a similar thing with their FA. Um, and that was, as I said, that was during like a competitive match in World Cup qualifying. And it ended up getting resolved and, and the strike didn't end up happening. So this kind of thing does happen a bit. In terms of an actual game getting canceled and you know players actually going on strike, uh, it's far less, um, f- f- it happens a lot less uh, often, but uh, not totally unexpected as this has happened before. Still, uh, you know, given the fact that the Iran friendly had already been canceled, this was really a makeup game, um, trying to try and trying to get something into this window, trying to get fans to come and see this team. Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of people, a lot of fans suffered for this, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there's any question. I mean, my, I feel especially bad for the people in BC and Vancouver because they haven't seen the men's team since I think 2019. So, I mean, that's a long way to, a long time to go without seeing the men's team. And Vancouver is such a hotbed, BC in general, is such a hotbed for the game. And so, you know, to go that long without seeing the national team, this was going to be a, you know, somewhat of a triumphant return. And to see it botched so badly, um, you know, <laughs> I can understand why there's a lot of, uh, disheartened fans out on the West Coast, absolutely. So, who's left holding the bag here? I know the dispute itself is relatively complicated, uh, right. but what's behind the dispute? And if a game gets called off, who's to blame? Well, I think there's equal blame to go around here. I mean, first of all, you know, I appreciate the position of the players because they're fighting for you know their rights and what they feel feel is fair and equitable, and they want to get paid and they want to cash in on this incredible success they they've had. I just wonder if, you know, actually refusing to, to train and play that game and forcing the cancellation was the right way to go. It seems like a rather um, nuclear option to take, um, you know, to go that far. And, you know, you can't, I can't help but wonder if they could have, you know, agreed to talk behind the scenes and continue to negotiate in good faith uh, and, you know, play this game. Uh, but obviously, they felt they were in a put put in a position that the that that wasn't an option for them. As far as the CSA concerns, I think they have to shoulder a lot of the blame for this. Um, they really only started negotiating over you know the payment scheme with uh, with the Canadian men's team back in March, just as they were wrapping up their qualifying uh, process for the World Cup. To me, that's outrageous. I mean, this should have been they should have anticipated the way that the qualifying campaign was going. Surely they could have seen that Canada was trending in the right direction and that a trip to Qatar was likely going to happen. It should have begun months before that, and it should have been wrapped up, signed, sealed, and delivered by the time they officially clinched the World Cup spot uh, when they beat Jamaica here in Toronto in, in March. The fact that they'd only begun the discussions right around then, and then it was only on Friday in Vancouver that they actually tabled an offer to the Canadian men's team. Um, that's outrageous. I mean, that, that's just poor timing. That's poor foresight. That's poor planning on Canada soccer's part. So what are the players looking for here? Uh, for listeners who might not know what this fight is about, uh, what are what are the players asking for? And what is uh, Canada soccer not giving them, at least not yet? Yeah, so it's a multi sort of layered sort of 
the demands that they have here. I mean, the most thing is that if, if for anyone who saw the letter that they released via social media yesterday, it's clear that they want some sort of respect here because they feel clearly disrespected by Canada soccer and the way been the way they've been treated, not just with regards to this situation, but I think years of there's been years of bad blood brewing between the players in Canada soccer, and they just want to be dealt with in a more professional way, have a bigger seat at the table in terms of how things are determined. Um, and just have, you know, have more knowledge about, you know, the, the business side of things and how things work and they want sort of more transparency. So that's one thing. I think the, the major sticking point is money in the sense that, you know, every team that competes at the World Cup, regardless of how far you go in the tournament, you're guaranteed a certain amount of prize money from FIFA. Now, the further you go along in the tournament, the more money you collect. So as it stands, I believe from according to reports, just for qualifying for the World Cup, Canada should get around $10 million US. That money doesn't go directly to the players. It goes to Canada soccer. It's then up to Canada soccer to, do, to decide how it wants to divvy it up. And usually play, team, national teams will go into negotiations with their, with their associations well ahead of time and negotiate what percentage of that prize money the, the players are going to get. The players have come out and said they want 40%. Um, when Nick Bontis, the Canadian soccer president, um, held his press conference yesterday in Vancouver. He said that's not tenable. That's just not. It would giving them agreeing to that sort of a deal would not make economic sense for Canada soccer, and it would it would no longer allow them to fund sort of the other programs outside of you know the men's and women's national teams. And it's important to remember that you know Canada soccer it's it's not just the men's and women's sides. It's also you know the under twenty sides and the youth teams and you know, programs for referees and player development and the Paralympic team. So there's a lot of money that has to be spent on a variety of programs. But it, that makes no sense. If you, it, That means you would have to presuppose that they knew that we're, the men's team was going to qualify for the World Cup and thus the windfall. Well, that's sort of the issue that I raised. I mean, I mean, it's, it's you know, they make it sound like, but for the fact that the, they make it sound as though that, you know, how do, how do I say this? They, they, I mean, Surely they could have, they had, surely that they were going to continue to fund these programs in 2020 and beyond, even if they hadn't, even if, if, if the men hadn't qualified for the World Cup. So this money that they're getting, it's newfound money. It's a new pot of money. It's not like it's there. The players are asking for money out of the existing budget. It, this is new money that has sort of been bonus to them, to the Can- Canadian Soccer Association, unless Canada soccer is saying that, They've been so mismanaged and they're so poorly in debt that, you know, they have nothing left in the budget, which um, if that is the case, then then we've got larger problems here. And and the question should be should be uh, asked of, you know, the Canada soccer's, you know, management style and competency. It's hard to imagine having bigger problems uh, than than blowing two friendlies in less than two weeks, but but or at least two different friendlies on the same day in less than two weeks. But uh, <laughs> who knows? Uh, John Molinaro is a soccer reporter and founder of TFCRepublic.ca. We're talking about the Canadian men's national team uh, calling off a friendly at the very last minute on Sunday in Vancouver. They were meant to play Team Panama. Uh, tickets were sold. Fans had come from across the country, across the province, to see the game. And just hours before kickoff, it was uh, it was cancelled over a dispute uh, between the players and the Canadian Soccer Federation. Uh, when we come back, we'll just talk a bit more about the impact on the team because they are meant to be getting ready for a World Cup here. And also just the impact on Canada's international reputation because soccer is an international game. So this got international coverage uh, when it was called off with lots of people asking what's going on in the Great White North. We'll be back with that. Speaking with John Molinero, he's a soccer reporter and founder of TFCRepublic.ca. We're talking about Team Canada's, uh, the men's team's decisions yesterday not to play a friendly against Team Panama uh, in Vancouver. That was a game that was actually a makeup, not a makeup game, but a replacement game for the game that was supposed to be played against Team Iran. That was called off because of a number of things, politics being one of the main ones. Uh, John, when you look at, the, I mean, this was really, as you mentioned, this was really meant to be a celebration of the team qualifying for the World Cup. And instead, it's turned into anything but. It's turned into this sort of public relations nightmare. Um, will it do damage to the team itself? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think the, the damage is more will be more in terms of, you know, the Canadian Soccer Association and its international reputation. You would have to think that the rest of the confederations around the world, it hasn't escaped their attention that Canada soccer had to cancel two games in the matter of two weeks. And that should they call the get a call from them in the future about arranging a friendly, 
they're going to be pretty leery about agreeing to uh, accept a date to play Canada, knowing that their reputation of canceling games uh, and, you know, with this sort of growing labor dispute. So uh, the question in terms of the damage, I think, is more for me, it's more about the reputation and what it means for Canada soccer. I think this makes things very difficult for them uh, going forward. And they've got a lot of sort of um, uh, PR uh, sort of work to do. As far as the national team concern is concerned, um, I think the damage is, is, is in that it's one less date for them to play going into the World Cup, right? I mean, you only have two international one deals, one in June and one in September, to play warm-up games before going up to Qatar. They were supposed to play three games in June, and they're supposed to play two in, in, in September. Instead of five games, they're only going to play four. That might not seem a lot in the grand scheme of things, but it really is when you think about it that, you know, Coach John Herdman, he only gets to see these players for a limited period of time. You can't forget that these guys are professionals. They have professional careers and with the, they're with their club teams. So any time that he can get them together, whether it's for a training session or an actual game competitive or national friendly, it's like gold to him because he has such limited access to them. So the fact that they have lost one sort of game uh, out of this international window it's a big sort of detriment and a big blow to their World Cup preparations. I don't think there's any question about that. I get the sense that fans will be forgiving here uh, because the team is so popular right now and so much fun to watch. Even people who aren't from Canada talk to me about Team Canada and how great they are. Uh, but this can't be good for the fans either in some senses because it leaves a bitter taste. If you, it, It's certainly out West. Uh, you know, This can't be good for, for the reputation. It, it takes a bit of the shine off what was supposed to be a glorious summer for this team. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any any you know doubt about that. I mean, people out west were you know justifiably you know pretty um, you know juiced for this game, right? I mean, they hadn't seen them play in Vancouver for three years, and you know they get the the rug pulled out for them once after selling out BC Place for the Iran game and getting you know having to sort of go through the refund process. I'm not even sure that the, all the refunds have been given out yet so far. I don't think so. No, I don't. Yeah, okay, I know well, there you go. Tickets to both who hasn't been refunded yet. Yeah. Well, there you go. And then you know they hastily arrange this Panama game, and you know they think, okay, well, like at least we're going to get a game in, uh, and you know they get their hopes up again, and again they get their the rug pulled out from them. So, yeah, this is not a good look for Canada soccer. I mean, if you're just from a customer relations point of view, I mean, this is disastrous. I mean, no business would sort of run its. Uh, you know, day-to-day operation like this and expect to be in business for very long. So um, again, I think there's a lot of work to do for Canada soccer to sort of repair the relationship with its fan base over how it's handled uh, these two friendlies in Vancouver. Do you see any changes coming at the, at the top with either Nick Bontis or, or anyone at top? Is, is our heads going to roll here? In other words, I'm a diehard cynic and I say, no, I think this is just going to sort of be, uh, you know, business as usual, they will cut the deal with, uh, you know, the men's team and f- figure out a contract in terms of the payment thing. But in terms of long-term ramifications, just knowing that the way that the Canada, you know, Canada soccer is operated, I mean, it's taken, change happens there like at a glacier sort of rate, right? I mean, things never move quickly and it, there's institutions there where just people stay in forever and it's really hard to make, you know, a seed change within the organization. I, I you know, it, it pains me to say, and, and as, as I said, I'm a, I'm a cynic about this just because I've covered the, the, the national team for so long that I've seen it, that, um, you know, if history is any indication, we're not going to see wholesale changes about this or any changes in the culture of, of way, how the way of how Canada soccer operates in any substantive way. Which could be part of the problem, no doubt. John Molinaro, yeah. thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure, you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this during the Platinum Jubilee, um, because most people were re- received pretty warm welcomes, except for the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. He was booed at St. Paul's. Now, to understand what that means is that, generally speaking, in England, if someone turns out for a royal event, uh, generally, they're, you know, they tend to be traditionalists, usually probably maybe conservative supporters. Usually. I mean, it's a generalization, but it's not always wrong. He gets booed at St. Paul's. So MPs within his own party aren't happy. His approval rating is is absolutely in the basement. Uh, it's a lot of it's over this so-called party gate scandal, which has dealt a blow to his authority. He was partying while other people were under lockdown. It's been proven. 
Um, you know, this is a guy who helped the conservatives to this massive victory in 2019. And it's just all gone completely wrong since then. So today there was a vote of confidence about his leadership. He survived just 148 against, 211 for. That seems like a good margin, but 148 against in your own party, that's a big deal. Boris Johnson tried to sound optimistic afterwards. And what we need to do now is come together uh, as, a, as a government, as a, as a party, and that is exactly what we can now do. And what this gives us is the opportunity uh, to put behind us all the stuff that I know the, uh, the media have quite you know, properly wanted to focus on for a very long time, uh, and to do our job, which is to focus on uh, the stuff that I think the public actually want us to be talking about. No one can sound quite as delusional as a politician, can they? Anyway, with more on this, Garrett Martin is a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. He joins me now. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. So uh, just numerically, it doesn't look that close. But historically, this was a lot of opposition within his own party to a sitting prime minister. That seems remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the last time that we had a leadership challenge against Theresa May in December 2018, uh, she won over 60% of the votes and yet was out of office a mere six months later. So the fact that Boris Johnson had less than 60% uh, does not bode well for his political future. I gather they're not allowed to challenge again this way for another year, but Boris Johnson, with this amount of hostility within his own ranks, it can't be a good sign for, for how does he hang on? It's going to be very challenging. I mean, to be fair, there is loose talk of trying to change the rules of the 1922 committee, which is the committee of the party which organizes these leadership challenges. So I think it tells you something that there is an appetite to try and have a leadership challenge faster than the next year. Now, theoretically, he does have this immunity, but in a way that's that's relative because if the close advisors, if the people close to him uh, down the line in a couple of months, if there's another revelation might force him out anyway. I mean, that's what happened really effectively for Theresa May, as I mentioned. She won the leadership challenge, but yet resigned six months later when her position became untenable. Now, for those who don't cover or don't follow British politics closely, uh, they may remember that he won a landslide election not that long ago. How has it gone so terribly for Boris Johnson in roughly a thousand days? Well, I think that there's several factors. I mean, the key, I think, is, you know, he won an election about Brexit, right? That was the key subject. But of course, soon after that, uh, the pandemic became the defining feature of British politics. And his management of the pandemic was not exactly stellar to start with. And, and secondly, I think all of the party gate really hit a raw nerve with people. You know, the, the revelations that essentially number 10 uh, the government and Boris Johnson had broken the stringent rules around COVID. That really hit a raw nerve because, you know, a lot of people in the UK had to abide by these very difficult rules. Uh, often it meant that they weren't able to have proper funerals and proper closures. So it really hurt. And I, was, I think it was really uh, difficult for a lot of people to accept the fact that Boris Johnson you know, defined these stringent rules, but was not living by them. It was obvious hypocrisy. And the fact that it was happening so many instances of these rules being breached, I think really had led to a a complete lack of support and just a lack of confidence in Boris Johnson. We did see him booed uh, over the weekend uh, at the Platinum Jubilee service at uh, at St. Paul's, of course, which is never a good sign at a royal function for a conservative leader to be booed at that kind of an event. Usually they're celebrated when it comes to the monarchy and such. Uh, for listeners who may not remember what Partygate is exactly about, uh, there was a, not just one, but a, it seemed like a series of violations and a report into it as well that was damning uh, about, about how Johnson and his closest advisors, his circle, inner circle behaved during the uh, lockdown. Oh, yes, it was. I mean, Partygate was extremely damning. I mean, the the events that were investigated took place over essentially spring of 2020 to the spring of 2021. So this was a period generally in which you had some of the most stringent lockdowns. Uh, The revelations that there had been those breaches and that rules had not been followed began to surface late in 2021 and then kept, you know, increasing throughout early 2022. And so... 
a number of investigations took place, one by a civil servant named Sue Gray and the other by the Metropolitan Police. And they were investigating about somewhere in the vicinity of about 16 instances that were known where the rules had been breached. Uh, Boris Johnson, you know, it's also important to remember, was in a very vulnerable position in February of 2022. It looked really like he was going to be ousted at that time. He got a temporary reprieve with the war in Ukraine, which helped a little bit his approval because it seemed at that time that maybe the war was a priority. But when the, the report by Sue Gray came out in full in late May, so about you know two weeks ago, uh, it was very damning about his leadership, very damning about the culture that had been uh, instituted in Downing Street of completely ignoring the rules. And you know it never helps also when you had photographic evidence of Boris Johnson clearly having a drink with a large number of other people at a time when those that, that was not permitted. Yeah, I mean, having parties at number 10, quite literally, at the same time as, it, and I, I know we've spoken about this in the past, at the same time as there were images of the Queen mourning the death of her husband all by herself. Yes, I mean, that was that, that juxtaposition of having a party at the same time as the Queen was mourning. And, you know, that specifically, you know, for conservatives, I mean, who generally are probably more supportive of the monarchy, uh, that was viewed as sort of, you know, an ultimate insult for many. And I think it also plays into a narrative that Boris Johnson is not always, let's say, can be somewhat economical with the truth. And I, I think it's really cemented an image. And crucially, it's cemented an image of him, you know, being highly hypocritical amongst the new voters that the Conservatives had been able to attract uh, in that landslide win that you mentioned earlier in 2019. Uh, the more traditional Labour voters in, in Northern England, in the so-called Red Wall. So the fact that he's lost a lot of support with that core constituency does not bode well. And the key question for the Conservative Party is, do they think they have a better chance of winning the next election, which is at the latest in late 2024, or would they be better off for someone else? And that's a key question that they really are going to have to, to think about, you know, in the next few months. But Johnson has always been known to be economical with the truth. I mean, it's kind of his kind of his signature in in many ways. You would think that a lot of you know the party, especially, knew exactly what it was getting in Boris Johnson. Yes, they did. But you know, it's a bit of a Faustian pact. I mean, he didn't know Boris did not really have a core constituency in the party like some others do. But the fact that he won in such a landslide, I think gave him a real sort of cachet or it gave him a real strength within the party. But the more his approval rating has been sort of tanking, and right now it's historically low. I mean, the last measurement uh, in early May, so before some of those revelations, was only 26% approval and 68% disapproval. And you you can't really recover from those numbers. I'm speaking with Gary. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, uh, Ben. I was just saying, you know, that's that's the problem is that the the likelihood that Boris Johnson can fundamentally turn that around is very limited. I'm speaking with Garrett Martin. He's a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. We're speaking about uh, Boris Johnson, Britain's prime minister, surviving today a confidence vote within his own caucus, but uh, but with record high disapproval, 148 MPs uh, voting against his leadership. When we come back, just a bit more about the Conservative Party itself, because if you just watch from afar, this is a party that hasn't lost an election this decade, in the last decade, but is now on to its third leader, who's also highly unpopular. We'll find out a bit more about why that is after this. I'm back with Garrett Martin. He's a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're speaking to Boris Johnson today, just surviving a confidence vote within his own caucus, 148 uh, MPs voting against him to roughly uh, just over 200 in support, less than 60% support from within his own party. Keep in mind, his own caucus. That's, that's astounding. Uh, Garrett, when we look back, I mean, David Cameron came and went over Brexit. Theresa May came. She's gone. Uh, now Boris Johnson is clearly in trouble. What's up with the Conservatives? Why can't they settle on someone? Well, you know, I think some of the cha- some of the challenge has to do, and this is not unusual if you look at other parties in other parts of the world, is that you know it's quite it's quite a divided party on certain core issues. For Theresa May, I think the big tension was over Europe between really sort of the hardcore Eurosceptics and those who are more mainstream. And I think that issue of Europe uh, had been very divisive for the Conservative Party for for decades. 
it brought down or it really weakened uh, John Major in the 1990s, leading to Labour's massive win in 97 with, with Blair. Uh, it really was an Achilles heel for David Cameron throughout. Um, so I think that's, that was a core, you know, core problem. Uh, Brexit, in a way, changed that dynamic because it really got rid, it purged all of the more mainstream sort of pro-European voices that still remain the Conservative Party and really became a party of Brexit. But, you know, it's also a very transactional approach. I mean, uh, you know, the, all of these MPs are worried about their own political future. They're worried that if they're saddled with Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's approval rating continues to tank and he becomes a massive liability, they're also worried about their own political future. As MPs are, are want to be. Uh, the opposition does not seem, I mean, a few by-elections recently might speak against this, or at least the momentum may be shifting. Uh, but of late, the, the opposition, whether it be Labour or the, or the Liberal Democrats, haven't really seemed to be able to take advantage of this turmoil within the Conservative Party, though. They, they haven't really capitalized as much as you expect. But I think it's still telling that throughout the polls, in the, about in the past 10 months, Labour has a consistent lead. Okay? And, and I think that's important. It, if that continues into next year, it, again, it's going to be very difficult to, to change that. Um, yes, Kerr is not necessarily very popular, but crucially, he's less unpopular than Boris Johnson. And if you remember, that was enough for Boris Johnson to beat a more unpopular leader in Jeremy Corbyn in 2019. So Starmer doesn't necessarily need to be very popular. He just needs to be viewed as less problematic as Boris Johnson. Um, I think also the issues around Boris Johnson are about trust, but I think they're also becoming more connected now to the inability. I mean, all of these issues around Partygate are also a distraction from the Conservatives delivering on the ambitious manifesto, the ambitious program that they outlined in 2019. Uh, The idea of the great leveling up, trying to help some of those regions that have been left behind economically, uh, rebuilding the NHS, building, you know, all the, the, the changes over the Northern Irish Protocol. Uh, I think that's also a big source of concern and a big source of, uh, you know, playing a part in the disaffection towards Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party that we're seeing in certain parts of the electorate. Yeah, certainly just a, a general sense that he is unable to govern uh, because of all these distractions. Is there anyone in the Conservative Party now, and I, I, if you think back, I guess, to 2019, this really, in many ways, because they did attract a lot of new voters, the Conservatives, uh, in 2019, that this was really sort of a Boris Johnson's Conservative Party attraction. And now this is clearly uh, what, be- what, was a, what was a benefit has now become a hindrance. Is there anyone in the wings in this party who people are going to want to warm up to uh, in time for the next general election? I think that's, in a way, the saving grace for Boris Johnson for, for the moment, that there isn't an air, a presumptive heir. Um, you have a couple of ministers that have some standing. You know, I'm thinking of Ben Wallace, who's a defence secretary, uh, Liz Trust, who's a foreign secretary. But none of them is really a clear-cut favourite, and they're not necessarily separate enough or have enough of a constituency. Uh, Richie Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer for a while, was a rising star, but his name was also tainted by my party gate. And he also received a fine for, for being part of the breaches of COVID protocols. So in a way, that might help Boris Johnson for the moment, because it's not just a question of getting rid of a prime minister. You also have to think about who can take over and be effective and give the party a better chance of winning at the next election. I know there are a couple of important by-elections coming up uh, in England, uh, one of which is in a, a seat that, that the Conservatives took from Labour. Uh, you mentioned the Red Wallers earlier. Uh, I imagine a lot of people will be watching to see how the party fares in those two by-elections to see whether or not the knives, the knives come back out and come back out quickly for Boris Johnson. Yes, those by-elections on June 23rd, if I'm not mistaken, are, are going to be crucial because fundamentally, and I think this is important to to analyze today's result in a a longer time uh, frame, Boris Johnson is in the vulnerable zone, okay? And whatever next sort of setback could again lead to the knives being drawn again. So if they lose the by-elections, which they last won, uh, and if they lose badly, if there's a big swing in terms of the votes to another party, Again, that could put renewed pressure on Boris Johnson. He really has no real margin of maneuver now. 
And, you know, people are going to be on the lookout to try and push him out if they feel that his, uh, you know, he becomes even more of a liability. And yet again, going back to his record, um, when, when he was mayor of London, he seems to have had this amazing ability to escape from these, from these very dangerous situations. Uh, do you suspect that he'll, he'll find a way out of this one? I am more and more skeptical. I, I think the sheer number of people who voted against him is very telling because you also have to think about his capacity to mobilize on any other subject is going to be tainted and compromised. Uh, you know, Graham Brady, who is the chairman of that committee that organized the vote, said that, you know, Boris Johnson has the confidence of the party. I mean, that's just a turn of phrase, but really, in many respects, it's not the case anymore. You know, he has lost confidence, you know, maybe like a cat, he has nine lives, but after a while, he is going to run out of space. And I, I am really would be surprised. I hate normally to put bets on this, but I would be surprised if he is prime minister at the end of this calendar year. Garrett Martin, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure.